Well, this morning we will be talking about everybody's favorite subject, and that is work. Our keywords for our worshipers in training are work, lazy, and sluggard. Now, I wonder if you've heard one of these modern proverbs. A bad day of golf is better than the best day of work. Or, hard work never killed anyone, but why take the chance? Or, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. Or one of my favorite, I pretend to work, they pretend to pay me. (laughs) Now these are funny, and maybe you've said some of them, you've seen bumper stickers with them on cars, maybe you can even relate to one of these statements yourself. And by and large, we as Americans, we live in a TGIF culture. We're always waiting for the weekend. We have movies and television shows based upon the mundaneness of work. We have an ever-present desire to escape the workplace. We want to get to our recreational activity of choice. We like to sit on the couch. We like to let it all go. In fact, I think as Americans, we enjoy doing anything other than working most of the time. When I was in college, I worked for a female attorney, and my coworkers and I would do everything that we could to be the first ones out the door at 5 p.m. on the dot. And we knew if we were stuck as the last one in the office, it was inevitable that we were going to hear a lengthy rant on how our boss just could not understand how everyone insisted on walking out the door at 5 o'clock when there was still work to be done. It's hard to say over a few years' worth of time how much I got paid for doing nothing more than watching the clock to see when I could leave. Perhaps you can relate Maybe you've had or currently have a job that you can't wait to leave. Every day you feel sick thinking about it. The fact that we're even talking about it this morning bothers you. Maybe you complain about it when it comes up in conversations. Perhaps you don't even have any work that you engage in at all. Work comes in all different forms, but some people have mastered the art of not working and are content to do whatever they can to avoid it at all costs. Now, there certainly are people on the other end of the spectrum as well, those who are workaholics. They eat and sleep and breathe work. They wake up and get to work immediately. They maybe even lay in bed and check their emails. They work in the car. They work at the dinner table. They work on vacation. They dream about work. And they do work on their cell phones when they go out on dates. And they bring their laptops to their kids' ball games. And they just work and work and work and work with no rest at all. And so like most things, we have a spectrum. Those who refuse to work at all and those who are addicted to work. Perhaps you fall into one of those categories. All of us fall somewhere on that spectrum. 
Now, the Bible has a lot to say about work, and you may be surprised to learn what it says is quite different than what most people assume or what they think about their own work day by day. As with most areas of practical, everyday life, the Proverbs specifically provide us with excellent wisdom regarding our work. But before we get there, it's important for us to consider some foundational things. What is work? Where does it come from? Why does it exist? What should we think about it? So let's begin by defining work. The dictionary gives us several definitions for it, but our, for our purposes, I want to use this basic definition. Work is any physical or mental activity in order to achieve a purpose or a result, especially in one's job. Now, note that that definition does not include anything about pay because there are legitimate forms of work that don't include receiving a paycheck. Things like being a stay-at-home mom or a housewife. And when that task is done well, it certainly is work, even if it doesn't come with monetary compensation. So work can be I know this is hard for some of you to believe. A pastor in his study, a carpenter in his wood shop, a roofer on top of a house, a mom at the park with her children, a counselor listening to someone's story, a manager in a fast food restaurant, a computer programmer sitting in front of his screen. You see, work comes in all different forms. It certainly comes in the form of that which provides an income in most cases, but not always. So particularly some of you ladies out there, if you are a homemaker, don't tune out. Because this applies to you just as much. It is not just about the nine to five. So where does work come from? I think it's important for us to begin where the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, you can turn there. We're going to look at several places in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. In Genesis 1, we see three important things that will help us understand where work comes from and what it is. The first place we need to start, as with most things, is with God. And we go no further than verse 1 of Genesis 1 to see work happening. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I hope you're all familiar with the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, where the magnificent work of God is on display over a span of six days, where he creates the specific elements of life that verse 1 summarizes as the heavens and the earth. And so we see God himself as a working God. And he doesn't stop in Genesis with creation. God is constantly at work. He's working through providence every moment of every day in all of creation. He's at work in redemption, rescuing his people from the darkness and granting them new life in Jesus Christ. He brings them into the glorious light. He's at work to bring all things to their final consummation according to his perfect will. God is sustaining us. He grants us the freedom and the ability to take another breath, to blink another eye, to walk another step, 
to speak another word. God is actively at work in all of these things at all times. It is not hyperbole to say that if God at any second stopped working in sustaining the universe, all of creation would cease to exist as it is. God is constantly at work. He must be. Now we see as a part of God's creative work in Genesis 1 that he created mankind. And he created man in a special way. He created man in imago Dei. We're creatures made in God's image. And as such, we are made as workers with a specific task. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now flip over and look at chapter 2 and verse 15. It says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now, this activity of taking dominion over all the earth and working and keeping the garden is something theologians have called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. As man has been created in God's image, man has been created as a worker. Therefore, mankind, men and women, have the responsibility to harness and utilize the earth's resources for service and for enjoyment. And hopefully you're realizing that what we're looking at right now comes prior to Genesis chapter 3. And that's very significant because it means that work was given to mankind prior to the fall. The first job recorded in the Bible was given to Adam by God in the Garden of Eden. Cultivate the ground, take dominion over all the earth. It seems like a mundane job, doesn't it? Gardening. But you know what? It's a dignified job. It is a holy job because God provided it and God called it good. And in fact, we can say, and I hope to show you this morning... That all legitimate work, whatever it is, when it's done to the glory of God, is dignified work. So work is what we call one of the creation ordinances. It's something that was ordained by God at creation. And that means that work is good, it is holy, it is right, it is assigned to all mankind as a duty for humanity. Furthermore, when men and women do legitimate work, it is good and holy and right because it is a reflection of the image of God. It brings glory to God. It doesn't mean it's easy. And there's a reason for that. In Genesis 3, one of the elements of the curse that God brought upon man as a result of his disobedience in the garden, breaking the covenant of works, is that his work, that which man must do, that which man was created to do, 
will be very difficult. Look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. He says to man, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we have a problem here, don't we? Because we are made in God's image. We have been designed to work. And in our work, we are to reflect the glory of God, his excellence, his creativity. However, our work is hindered. It's hindered by thorns and thistles, problems, failures, difficulties, frustrations, headaches, disagreements, broken parts, weeds, complex formulas, fatigue, endless paperwork. And it goes on and on and on, right? However, The Bible could not be more clear than what we read from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he writes this, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So you see, work is not a product of the fall. Work came before the fall. But all of the problems that come in the midst of our work, all of the frustrations and headaches, all of the thorns and thistles, those are products of the fall in which we are all affected. Now one last thing I want to point out before we get into the Proverbs, and that is the implied necessity of work in the law of God. As Christians, hopefully we all understand and have learned over the last few years especially that the law of God was given for three important reasons. And the third of those three reasons is that we as Christians have a rule of law to live by. So the moral law of God, more specifically the Ten Commandments, tell us how we are to live if we are to walk in obedience to God in right relationship with him as his people. Now there are two of the Ten Commandments that relate directly to work. One mentions it specifically and the other presupposes it as a necessity. First, in the fourth commandment, we read this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now notice the law says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. So you see the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment is 
is not just a command to rest. That certainly is part of it. And so recreation and and leisure are part of our lives. They must be. However, it is not just a command to rest, but it is also a command to work. The rest that's given in the Sabbath is the reward from working. It is the rest that God has given to us as a gift, as a result of our laboring day by day among the thorns and the thistles. But to get the reward of rest, we are called first to work, which in the first century generally meant six 12-hour days every single week, 72 hours a week, not five eight-hour days or four tens. We have it good. Now, the other commandment of the law in which work is presupposed is the eighth commandment, which says this, you shall not steal. Now, what's implied in that? Don't steal. Don't take what's not yours. But instead, what should you do? Work for it. We must work for what we have or want and not steal it from others. So in all of this, we've seen that work is a gift from God. It is a creation ordinance that all of mankind is responsible for. Work is the means by which God provides for his people and by which we fulfill our calling to reflect the image of God. However, it's a gift and a command of God's law that was frustrated by the fall. And as a result, we are left to do our work, but not without great stress and difficulty and trial. And naturally, we don't like that. But I wonder if you've ever considered that the problem with your work then is not the work itself. In large part, the frustrations that have come in our work are as a result of sin. It's a result of our sin. It's a result of the sin of our first parents. And as with all other areas of our lives, sin plays prominently in our work. And the book of Proverbs identifies what I believe is the most common tendency that we have as it pertains to work. And while we've talked about the fact that there's a spectrum, and there are those who are workaholics, and that is a serious issue, The Proverbs take direct aim at what is probably a more common issue, and that is laziness. As I said earlier, workaholism is a serious error. But for us, especially for Americans in our generation, laziness is the bigger issue. It's the issue that Solomon spends the most time on, in the Proverbs, because let's face it, even when we're busy, a lot of times we're busy because prior to being busy, we've been lazy. We procrastinate. We put things off in favor of our recreation and leisure. I want to begin in Proverbs chapter 6, and we're going to move through the Proverbs quite a bit this morning and look at several of them, but we're going to begin in chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 11. Now, throughout the Proverbs, and hopefully most of you have spent time reading through the Proverbs, you recognize that Solomon doesn't pull any punches when assigning people specific titles. 
In our culture, we might look at a 30-year-old man who still lives with his mom and has world records on all his favorite Xbox games but doesn't have a job and is not seeking to find one, we might look at him and say he's struggling to get motivated or he's lacking in gainful employment or he's occupationally distressed. But the Bible tells us what's really going on. This man is a sluggard and the sluggard is identified as a fool. Now, you see all throughout the Proverbs this juxtaposition of the wise man and the foolish man. The foolish man is the man who lacks wisdom. And the man who lacks wisdom lacks a knowledge and fear of God. The psalmist writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So a fool is one who rejects not only the creator, but also the creator's design and including the design to work. The sluggard is a fool, and a fool lacks the wisdom to work hard. So Solomon gives the sluggard a very direct admonition to look at how God has created work, which is evident in what initially seems to be the most mundane of all the creatures. He points to the ant. In verses 6 through 8, in Proverbs chapter 6, we read this. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now Solomon points out to the sluggard that God has something to show him, even in the ant without someone standing over the ant telling her what to do, without being spoon-fed instructions, without making excuses and saying, well, nobody, nobody told me. She's organized. She's preparing. She is working hard. She doesn't need external leaders who will organize everything for her, what it will be, when it should be completed. The ant has a God-given wisdom to work and the God-given ability to order it wisely. And so the implication for the sluggard is you do also. There's much from the ant for the sluggard to learn. But what does the sluggard do instead? Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The diligent work, the industriousness, the foresight, the planning and organization of this, the the simple little ant provides a stark contrast to the sluggard. He lies in his bed and he sleeps. And we'll look at this aspect a little bit later, but but you see the difference that's drawn out here. Surely you've watched a team of ants in a line, marching in order, moving food and moving grains of sand that will be used for shelter, for the good of their colony. Did you know that an ant can carry up to 50 times its own weight in its mandibles? They're hard workers. And to think they only live for about two months before they die. So what do we say at the end? They spend their whole lives working. The sluggard, he spends his life sleeping. 
Now, if your heart works anything like mine, I know you might be thinking right now, well, I'm not a sluggard. I don't just lay around all day sleeping my time away. And I'm glad about that for you. However, we need to expand this principle a bit here beyond physical sleeping and ask some questions of ourselves. How much time do we willfully waste because we are unwilling to do the work that we're called to? Maybe you have a job where you can get by with spending your time on your cell phone throughout the day, looking at Facebook, sending text messages. Is that what your employer is paying you to do? It's a lazy approach to work. In fact, it's stealing from your employer. Maybe you're a homemaker. And I know, just being at home, there are plenty of things around the house that can prove as distractions. How do you deal with those distractions? How do you put those aside and focus on the work that you're called to do in your home? Let's consider some other descriptions of the sluggard in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs 15 and verse 19. And this might help us answer some of the questions we're asking a bit more honestly. Proverbs 15, 19 says this, The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Well, what does that mean? Well, in the eyes of the sluggard, everything is just too difficult. The way forward is just way too tough. In fact, it might be dangerous. It might be unwise. It's surrounded by a hedge of thorns. Have you ever been in that state of mind? Perhaps as a student, you have papers to write, assignments to complete, several projects to do. They've all been given to you weeks prior, but they're all due tomorrow, and you've done nothing So what's the best thing to do when you have the work piling up around you? The sluggard, having put it off this long, will say, it's too difficult. And instead, I'm going to turn on the television and waste my time away. I love how sarcastic and playful the Proverbs can be at time. In two different places, in, in chapter 22 and verse 13, and chapter 26 and verse 13, Solomon writes this, The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. So the picture here is a, a, a grown man who's lying around all day at home, And his mom comes and tells him, you need to get out there and you need to get a job. What does he say? Well, I would love to do that. But you know, there's lions outside. And as soon as I go out there, they're going to get me. You see, sluggards have excuses. They have all kinds of excuses. One after the other after the other. They make excuse after excuse why things don't get done and why they are just better off being lazy. This man has an irrational fear. And while we see it as absolutely ridiculous, he believes what he says. Surely nobody can fault him for staying home when there's a possibility of being mauled to death by a lion. Now, you might not be willing to admit this out loud, but has this ever been true of you? It may not be this irrational fear that drives you to laziness, but 
You are certainly no stranger to making excuses. You know, I'd really, really like to get that report done that my boss has been asking me for, but I'm, I'm feeling a bit parched right now. I probably need to get something to drink. And, you know, after I stop by the water cooler, I want to swing by and see how Jim's holding up. He had a pretty bad sunburn after our time on the boat last weekend. Oh, wow, I, I need to swing by the bathroom, and I, I forgot to see if Larry responded to my Facebook request. I haven't seen him for quite a while. And I, oh, I just remembered those new golf shoes I've been wanting are on sale at Budget Golf online right now, and I have to do that. You see how easy it is. Bruce Waltke commented on this lion-fearing sluggard. He says, he is represented as finding fantastic and preposterous excuses to demonstrate that no idea is too odd or fantastic to help keep him on welfare. His life and the community is not in danger from his phantom lion in the streets, but are from his lazy lifestyle. So you see, the danger is not out there. The danger's in here. It's in our hearts. Well, what else do we learn from the Proverbs about the sluggard? In Proverbs 18 and verse 9, we read a very unflattering description. It says this, Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The man who neglects his responsibilities, not tending to his field, not caring for his animals, he is neglecting the important means that God has provided that he might live. But his laziness has led to rot and decay. He is, according to the Proverbs, a brother to him who destroys. Think of someone who comes in the middle of the night and destroys the field or crops and vandalizes all the property. Solomon is telling us the man who is a sluggard is no different from the one who is a vandal. And even more pernicious is that he is doing it to his own field, his own goods, his own livelihood, his own family. This reminds me, one of the things I enjoy doing as a hobby is gardening. And I remember several years ago, I was having a tough time. There were several different insects on all my plants. They were getting eaten. A few others were getting a fungus. And over time, it got to be a lot of work. And when you're dealing with those things and all these factors, it can be very frustrating. Instead of reminding myself of Genesis 3 and realizing this is part of it, eventually, I just didn't want to spend time on it anymore. So I let it go. I just let it go. I didn't pull up the bad plants. I didn't try to keep the good ones going. I just left it. Now, the problem was not that year. It was the next year. Because of my laziness and neglect with all of it, I had not only to take out the old plants, but then I had to replace the soil. And I wasted what could have been very valuable compost. And it was foolish, and it, it took a long time to recover because I wasn't doing the work that was required. I was frustrated, so we just let it go. But something we so often learn in our laziness is that in the end, it actually causes more work, not less. We may be comfortable in the moment, but the time will come when we will pay the debt that is owed from our lack of diligence. 
Along those lines, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4, it says this, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. It's a warning about procrastination. Are you a procrastinator? Some of you may say that about yourselves. I remember in school there were always a lot of people the night before a paper was due typing it out as fast as they could at 2 a.m. Is everything you do down to the wire? We learn here that procrastination is not a virtue. It is a way of a sluggard, and sometimes it costs you dearly. Notice the sluggard came to autumn and said, Plow? Why do I need to plow? It's autumn. It's, it's fall. He refused to prepare his land in March, so when it was time to plant and harvest later on, he had nothing. He was unprepared. He waited. He chose instead to sleep through the cold season instead of putting in the time so he might be ready. A little further down the page, verse 13, we read this. Love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. The sluggard chooses to sleep over work in the fall, and as a result, he will come to poverty. If only he would open his eyes, he would rise from his slumber, he would have plenty to eat. There may be a delay, but the sluggard will eventually pay for his procrastination and his lazy decisions. Now look over at Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26, verses 14, 15, and 16. Solomon gives us a great word picture here. He says, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Now there's really three primary things being pointed out here about the sluggard. These three verses give us a good summary of who this man is. The first word picture we receive is that of a door. The sluggard lays on his bed and the only movement we get out of him is turning on his side like a door turns on its hinges. Now, we have to be fair to the door here. At least the door is doing what it's supposed to do. The sluggard wastes his time rolling around in bed. Second word picture, and I'll be honest, this is one of my favorite things in all the Bible because it is hilarious. We have a man who is exerting no more effort than to turn on his bed, and the sustenance that he is given is in a bowl. But he's so lazy and so unwilling to do any work. Proverbs 19.24 says the same thing. He buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. I picture a man laying on his back in bed, Someone brings him a bowl of Doritos and he rests it on his chest and he puts his hand in the bowl, but he just leaves it there because he's too lazy to bring it to his mouth. Now that's lazy. 
And it's easy to hear that and to be really self-righteous and say, well, at least I am not that guy. But there's a principle here that we have to be after. Have you ever noticed how tired people are who don't do anything? Just thinking about the possibility of actually working wears them out. Man, I, I sent out three resumes this week. I'm exhausted. I just, I just binge-watched every episode of my favorite television series on Netflix. I can't possibly sit down and fold these clothes. I stayed up late looking at Facebook, so I had to sleep in this morning, and now it's heating up outside, so that yard work is just going to have to wait for another day. But honey, we can't get out of our door. The bushes are growing in front of it. Uh, We'll just go out the side window. (laughs) The third picture we get here, a sluggard who is wiser in his own mind than the wisdom of seven other men. This guy is absolutely convinced of his own wisdom and certainly doesn't see himself as he truly is. In the slugger's mind, he is a hard worker. In his mind, he's doing everything he can. In his mind, he's not the problem. It's them. It's those people. They don't know what they're talking about. They just don't understand. Just because there's seven of them doesn't mean they're right. And while that might be the case, it's very rare that we are actually the correct minority when dealing with those who are wise. The principle here is that the sluggard is unteachable. They don't receive correction. They don't take any input. They don't ask for anyone to give them any feedback. It's purely a matter of circumstances for them. It's always Someone or something else's fault. Do you ever find yourself in that position? The reason you're not getting anything done, the reason you're putting off the things you need to do and pursuing all of these other activities instead is because of the circumstances. Others just don't understand. Is it possible that your assessment of the whole situation is maybe a little off? Are you simply unwilling to hear the counsel of others because you assume you've got it all figured out? If so, the Bible doesn't simply say you're a sluggard when it comes to work. It says you're a fool. And so often, someone who's lazy assumes their laziness is their issue to deal with. It doesn't affect anybody else. But that's not true, is it? When has there ever been a sin committed that doesn't affect other people? Proverbs 10, 26 says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. You may receive counsel from seven godly, wise people and reject it all, but in doing so, you have become a burden, an irritation like smoke in the eyes, an acidic, bitter taste in their mouth. The sluggard is a drain on those who seek to offer help. Well, let's get to the heart of what's going on with the sluggard. Look at Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. It says this, I passed... 
by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Do you see what happens with those who disdain God's gift of work in their lives? Everything comes to ruin. God has provided all of us with a means for sustenance, and yet the sluggard refuses to embrace it as a gift, and instead he, he wickedly holds it in contempt. This is the very thing that makes laziness so sinful. God promises us that he will provide for our needs. He does so through the means of work, and he gives his people opportunities. He gives us physical strength. He gives us soundness of mind. But in the end, when we refuse to work, we are wickedly rejecting that which God has provided. This is the very reason why Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And herein lies the principle that Proverbs is shouting out loud. Laziness is not just someone's makeup that we are to laugh off and deal with. Laziness is a sin. It's a moral and spiritual issue that must be eliminated from the Christian's life. And we want to blame a lot of things, but in the end of the day, we have to say that the Bible is true. This is an issue of the heart. A refusal to work in whatever capacity the Lord has called us to is a sin. And if you're a sluggard, you need to repent. If you love sleep and you hate work, you're a sluggard. Now listen, I know there are some situations where a person is unemployed because they're disabled or because of other situations and maybe they're not lazy. There are other situations where someone is, is diligently looking for work. Their work is, their work each and every day is looking for work. And there's all sorts of different issues where that may be the case. So it doesn't always involve going to an office or a job site or, or making a paycheck that we call something work. Someone's work may be looking for work. Someone may be disabled and unable to work, but let's be honest. Almost anyone who is going to seek to make excuses isn't in one of these categories. Most often, they're self-righteous sluggards. Those who want to work and can work, in general, God will provide for. So you see, the issue of work is an ethical issue. I, didn't know, I know we didn't talk much about the issue of workaholics, and I'm certain a few may exist in our midst, but the heart issue is the same. It's a moral and spiritual issue in which we think of work either too low or too high. They both lack in genuine gospel transformation. And you may hear all of this and think, well, anyone can do this. Anyone could, could just change their behavior and all of this is just going to fall into place. But that's not 
what the Bible teaches us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So only in Christ can we understand what is truly wise. The unconverted man cannot understand his work rightly because he does not know the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. Even if, from an earthly perspective, a man is the best and hardest worker we know, he works hard, he does a good job, maybe he even loves his job, we have to agree with Scripture that his motivation and his pursuits are opposed to God, which is all the more an indictment on the lazy Christian. But when the gospel changes a person, their entire outlook on life changes. For the workaholic, they no longer see their identity in their job because they know their identity is in Christ. For the sluggard, they no longer see work as a drudgery and as a curse. They understand it as a gift, albeit filled with many difficulties. So the Christian will live life in such a way as to not bring reproach to the name of Christ, but will instead execute their duties in life in such a way that Christ is honored. And Christ is exalted. The Christian takes Paul's admonition seriously. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we work, whatever it is, we are working most importantly for the Lord and not for others. So what about you? Is a bad day of doing your favorite hobby better than your best day of work? Or do you see your work as a gift from God, something to be thankful for, something to do to the very best of your ability that you utilize as a means, not just for a paycheck, but to bring glory to God and to bring good to those who you're working with and working for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Together, we want to thank you for the gift of work that you provide for us, that you give us sustenance, that you give us a means by which we can provide for ourselves and our families in whatever capacity that is. I'm thankful, Lord, that in our church here, that we have many various kinds of work that you are providing for your people, that you are providing not only financially, but in our homes. Through wives and mothers, you're providing places of refuge, comfortable, warm places where we can gather with our families. And for those who earn paychecks, we are thankful, Father, that you have given those to us. And so I pray, Lord, that we consider your word and that what we earn, we earn rightfully. That we not steal from our employers. That we not set our eyes on the clock, but that we set our eyes on doing what we've been called to do diligently. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to take the truth of your word and to work it out. That we not see what we do day by day as a drudgery and as something we simply have to do.
but rather as something we get to do because you have given it to us as a gift, albeit filled with difficulties. May it be that we overcome those difficulties by your grace, most ultimately for your glory. May it be that we are a people who works not unto man, but unto you. Thank you, Father. We love you, we praise you, and we ask all of this in the holy and precious name of Jesus, our dear Lord and Savior. Amen.